Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Alexandra Loza about her book, Prevail Until the Bitter End, Germans in the Waning Years of World War II, which came out in October of 2021 with Cornell University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Alexandra, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Leah, for having me. So a bit about our guest today. Dr. Loza earned her BA and PhD in history at American University in Washington, D.C., and is currently an applied research scholar team lead at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. She joined the Jack Joseph and Morton Mendel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies in 2017 as a scholar and editor of the forthcoming sixth volume of the museum's Encyclopedia of Camps and Ghettos, 1933 to 1945, on extermination, labor, and transit camps for Jews. In 2020, she started serving as series editor, coordinating the work of in-house and external researchers and volume editors to complete the encyclopedia series. Dr. Lewis's research, as you'll see today from the book, focuses on German society during World War II and on the nature and endurance of popular support for Nazi regime during the final war years. Dr. Loza first contributed to the Encyclopedia Project as a contract researcher between 2012 and 2015, when she wrote original content for several volumes of the series. She has also worked at the National Archives and served as staff historian for the U.S. Naval History and Heritage Command. With John Middow, she co-authored the 2018 publication Operation Torch, the American Amphibious Assault on French Morocco, 1942. So I would like to now move on to discussing uh, the book, but first hear a little bit more broadly about your work and what brought you to the field itself, what brought you to the field of World War II history, and in particular, Nazi Germany. Yeah, thank you, Leah. I just want to preface this by saying that the views expressed in my book and in our conversation today are mine and do not represent those of my employer, the USHMM. And uh, it's such a pleasure, though, to have this opportunity to talk about my uh, outside scholarship with you. And as to your question, what brought me to the field, I would say that uh, growing up in what was then East Germany in the 1980s and the 1990s, I was always fascinated by the history of Nazi Germany, and I felt immersed in it in, in some ways. I, uh, you know, I, I went to an Anne Frank Memorial School. There were um, there were field trips to concentration camps. There were memorials to the victims of fascism. And so this history seemed to be everywhere. And it was very late, really, in my childhood that I realized we talked about some of the victims of Nazism or fascism, as it was called, but we never actually talked about our families or, or, you know, what our families did during that period. And so I became really fascinated with ordinary Germans during the war. Um, Obviously, Christopher Browning's study spawned a whole field of studies into the experiences and perceptions of ordinary people uh, and ordinary combatants during that period. And I wanted to contribute to that conversation. And so I wouldn't then, since you you mentioned briefly uh, the subject of your study, if you could give us a sense of who are your subjects of interest in this work. Uh, you're talking in particular about ordinary Germans, as, as we might call them. Uh, so perhaps you could give us some insight into what were the sources that uh, allowed you to tell this story and to allow you to discuss in depth how everyday Germans, how civilians perceived the final years of World War II. 
Yeah, I think I think my sources are, are uh, one of the most fascinating um, aspects of my book, and and I want to preface that by saying that that many other authors have used them to great effect to uh, try to dismantle the myth of a clean Wehrmacht, to try to get at um, ideological or or situational explanations for how Germans behaved as combatants or civilians during the war. But in, in any case, uh, the, my most important source base uh, consists of a, a set of several thousand records that were generated by a British intelligence cooperative called the Combined Services Detailed Interrogation Center. That's a mouthful. Uh, the, the acronym is CSDIC that was founded in 1939 for initially for the purpose of uh, interrogating German POWs for intelligence purposes. And the agency very quickly realized that there was much more, that there was a broader range beyond strategic and, and technical aspects, uh, a broader range of intelligence to be had from German POWs in British captivity, and that uh, a lot of that information could not be extracted through interrogation, but really by listening in on German POWs as they spoke in the presumed privacy of their cells. So what they did is they equipped these uh, special cells for for a select group of German prisoners with hidden uh, hidden recording devices, and then listened in as the as the prisoners spoke among themselves, created transcripts of these conversations, and then um, shared them with a range of intelligence organizations. So by the end of the war, this organization generated. Uh, about 17,000 transcripts of conversations among German POWs in British captivity that are available at the National Archives here in the U.S. and at the National Archives in Kew and uh, outside of London. And those are one of my most important source bases uh, in, in trying to gauge how German combatants from all branches of, of the armed services perceived their own war experience and also how they talked about the home front, how they talked about the Hitler regime, how they talked about their families at home. Um, and, and really, it gave a great insight into how what we might call ordinary uh, combatants uh, understood the unfolding crisis of the of the later war years, and to get at you know more specifically at civilian perspectives, I also draw on the the usual types of sources we use for that: letters written during the war to and from the front, uh, some diaries, as well as other. Uh, foreign intelligence and Nazi uh, or or German sort of intelligence on their own home front and on the own morale of of the German people during that time. And this is something that's a recurring theme throughout the book, which is the relationship between those on the front and civilians at home, and in particular, the letters that civilians would receive from those on the front, and that as a, as a key source of information. I was wondering if you could give us some uh, an idea of of what this relationship was and how this developed in the final years of the war, uh, in terms of how civilians uh, received or, or developed their understanding of the state of things. Sure, the and, and you're absolutely right. That relationship between the home front and the front, or between between the combatants uh, in the field and the German civilians at home is really critical for understanding how how a broader German societal understanding of the war and impending defeat uh, developed. What, what we find is that uh, the the connection between the home front and the front remains very strong throughout the war. There is ample uh, letter and parcel traffic between the front and the home front. Um, German combatants, German soldiers are granted home leave, um, not uniformly, 
but uh, many of them are granted home leave uh, well into the final war years, well into 1944, which is quite unusual. And during these home visits, um, we have evidence that uh, the civilians at the home front really engaged in, in conversations with with these combatants and, and really, you know, whether they were related to them or whether they were part of an extended friendship circle uh, or acquaintances, civilians really clamored for what they perceived as, as these uh, eyewitness accounts from the front, from the field, because they believed that those were much more reliable indicators of how the war was going than official Nazi propaganda. And, and, the, and the opposite of that is true as well. This is a multidirectional relationship. Um, we find a lot of evidence of, of deployed German soldiers sailors um, who are you know looking forward to their letters from home and and they or or if if they don't get their own letters they are clamoring for their comrades letters to try to gauge what is the situation like at home what is the mood like at home is the home front holding are you know are is the suffering that people experience at the home front such that it will undermine the war effort so so this uh, information exchange goes both ways and really uh, starts to shape common perceptions of, of the war effort, of the crisis that's unfolding between 1943 and 1945, and, and of the expectations of, of what might still be possible for the German war effort at that point. So you described this symbiotic relationship, uh, but on the other hand, it wasn't clear cut. It wasn't just an exchange of, of hidden truths in order to cut through propaganda. You also talk about, I think this was in your second chapter, the issue of, of civilians seeking not necessarily the truth, but a truth. Um, so I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate on that further in terms of what was, what was a truth, what was a bearable truth, and how did the definition of that uh, change in these, these two years that you focus on? Sure. I, you know, what, what I find so fascinating about this topic, even now that I finished the book, and it's still something I, I think about and, and would love an opportunity to explore more, is, is what I see sort of major shifts in how the German population experiences this war. Um, we know that unlike in World War I, there was very little appetite for war among, the, among German society uh, when it started in 1939. There was no, you know, there were no similar scenes of, of enthusiasm or, or, or uh, you know, celebrations in the street. People were very subdued and very worried about what this war would mean, the sacrifices it would bring. By... But we also know that, that those early war years in which the German armies seemed to conquer large swaths of, of European territory almost, almost without problem, uh, really persuaded a lot of Germans, um, German civilians and, and, and low-ranking soldiers that, that this was indeed a, a worthwhile war. This was a worthwhile effort and, and good things were going to come of it. Um, we find then later in the war, especially after what is perceived as a as a major turning point uh, after the defeat of of the German defeat at Stalingrad, that people are starting to get worried and um, and that but at the same time, you know, as as evidence mounts that that the German military situation is not tenable and 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 that. Germany is facing an overwhelming enemy coalition, eventually from all sides as well as from the air uh, during the escalating air war. We find people are, Germans are acknowledging those facts. They are gathering evidence and, and experiencing evidence of deterioration, but they're not willing to say or many of them, at least in, that I encountered in my sources, are not willing to say this war is a lost cause. There is no way we can win this war. And in fact, as the war drags on into 1944, when Germans really start experiencing a catastrophic bloodletting for the first time, um, it, it is at that point that the resolve to continue the war, the popular resolve to continue the war becomes ever stronger. So... So what, what interests me is, is, is this 
interesting juxtaposition of, of responses where um, in hindsight, as historians perhaps, and even at the time, intelligence uh, observers looked at the situation on the ground in 1943-44 and wondered, how can Germans continue, this, continue to fight this war? It is evident uh, or it seemed evident that the, that they were going to lose it eventually. And yet the Germans in the sources that are available to us are somehow convincing themselves that, yes, things are bad, but we can still turn this around. There is a way of winning this war. So so that's what I mean when, when I talk about Germans or, or ordinary Germans looking for a truth, but not necessarily the truth. They know, a lot of people know by 43, 44, that official Nazi propaganda is not based on facts necessarily, and, and that uh, they cannot rely on official, you know, Wehrmacht proclamations or, or official news channels. So, as I said, they start seeking for alternative sources of information or what they hope to be facts, which is primarily through conversations with, with eyewitnesses or, or participants in the war, also to some extent uh, through foreign propaganda, and they mine all these alternative sources of information for what they hope to be a more realistic or more reliable view of the actual war situation, but one that also confirms to them that this war is in fact not lost for Germany yet and, and that there is hope for Germany to turn this around and ultimately achieve what many Germans believe is a victory that is their due. And in on the subject of a victory that is there due, you, you mentioned and, and made a comparison with the atmosphere uh, in World War One versus in World War Two. In the book, you talk a few times about the issue of the stab in the back myth and it's uh, how it reached new heights during the war and how it also, um, how their relationship to this myth shifted during the war. How did Germans cope with the potential of yet another massive defeat in these final years? Very poorly. <laughs> um, the 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 fear of of the stab in the back, which was also deliberately fanned again, uh, which obviously originated uh, in World War One, um, uh, as a myth of, of to explain why Germany lost World War One. Uh, this this myth was was reinvigorated and amplified again in in the later war years of World War Two deliberately by the regime to stoke um, resistance among the Germans, to stoke uh, a will to fight against all odds and, and to emphasize the need for the front and the home front to work in concert. And, uh, and, and, and so the, the regime is working hard to, to motivate and, and mobilize all uh, segments of German society during those final years. And Germans, at least the Germans I have encountered in my sources, are, are skeptical of, of, of sort of how far can this go? What, you know, what are we actually, uh, what can we actually offer against this overwhelming enemy coalition? But at the same time, they also share a belief that, yes, if we keep fighting together in concert as one, as the Nazi regime demands, then we must win. And so, so the, the specter of defeat during those years is is really is, is a driving motor um, that that helps sort of mobilize the the German populace both from from the top down through through Nazi directives but also from the bottom up it's it's a sort of it works as a self motivator and then we find that there are specific aspects to it or, or aspects that are specific to the German situation in this particular war um, we find that. The awareness, for instance, or the growing awareness or shared awareness of atrocities and war crimes that uh, that the German armed forces, or in, in this case, that it's always alleged that it was only the SS uh, committed during the war, 
would, you know, would cause a reckoning or, or would cause the Allies to treat the Germans so cruelly in defeat that the Germans had no other choice but to avoid a defeat, uh, that a victory for Germans really was the only way to avoid uh, being held accountable for these crimes and possibly being treated in a similar way that Germans had treated others. Um, so that too becomes a motivator and, and, uh, but it's, it's a fear-based motivation that defeat in the minds of, of many Germans is so, is such a horrific prospect with so much punishment and perhaps even a national obliteration connected to it, that defeat is simply not an option. So they must continue fighting till the bitter end. Mm -hmm. And I want to return to the subject of, of war crimes soon, but I, I first want to talk about uh, what you focus on in the second chapter, which is this announcement of total war. Um, and could you tell us a bit more about how this functions as a political program and also rhetorically in terms of um, setting forth the the rest of the war as, as total war? How did it affect existing social and material strains in German society? What were the successes and limits of this mobilization? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's it's really complicated because uh, you're absolutely right to what I describe in, in my book uh, in that chapter is is a sort of rhetorical mobilization. Um, it, it continues to surprise people reading about the war today, and it certainly surprised eyewitness and contemporaries at the time how long Germany held off on total mobilization, given, you know, this, this global war that, that that Germany was facing and had unleashed, in fact, um, we find that it was very late in the war that the German civilians would and, and, and other aspects of society were actually drawn into the conflict in a, in a deliberate and active way. So, so this mobilization for work services or other military auxiliary services happens very late. Um, the strict rationing happens very late. Um, there are all sorts of aspects uh, in which Germany uh, or the German, the Nazi regime really tried to shield, especially civilian society from the strains and burdens of the war. And in part, again, because of this notion that if we strain civilians too much, then the home front will collapse and that will endanger the entire war effort. So, so after the defeat at Stalingrad, which um, both German leadership and German society or, or, or the German populace experience as a, as a catastrophic and, and traumatic event, we find uh, several efforts by uh, high-ranking Nazis, most notably Goering, uh, whom I deal with in this book, or in this chapter, to mine this defeat and, and rally and, and, and sort of achieve the type of total mobilization that they hoped would turn the war around again in Germany's favor, and, and that would uh, hopefully harness all the, all the resources and all the powers of Germany against the enemies that, uh, that the country was facing. And but but what happens is that this is less of a political or, or policy program for for a long time. This has less to do with you know uh, instituting work requirements or, or uh, strict rationings, and it's more of a rhetorical. We must all fight till the bitter end. We must all, you know, like, I don't know, like, uh, like the ancients before us, we must fight as one and, and be willing to essentially self-annihilate. And it is through that willingness to self-annihilate that we will harness uh, the strength to, to win a victory here. And perhaps not surprisingly, um, that effort of of sort of radicalizing the German populace and, and sort of harnessing a willingness to, to self-destruct in the name of victory falls flat. It, it does not achieve what Nazi leadership hopes it would do. Uh, people are bewildered by it. It, it does not resonate um, with their experience. It, it does not make a lot of sense to, to a lot of people to say, I am, you know, we are all willing to, 
to die fighting. Um, and yet, um, so it, but what, what we do find in, in, in subsequent months and years is this resolve nonetheless that I described, uh, in, in which people are, are, are willing to continue the war effort, but they're not doing it to self-destruct or self-annihilate. They're doing it because they believe they can win and, and will live in a, you know, in a post-victory world. So you talk about this, uh, self-preservation effort, of course, but you also talk about how the German society on a larger scale was mobilized a bit later. So one thing that interested me was also your point that you made about uh, women in auxiliary roles on the Western Front and the sort of gendered anxiety, uh, gendered wartime fears uh, of the Blitzmädel who were um, serving in the war in some function. How did this crystallize particular anxieties among German civilians and the German military over morality and of the German social fabric, anxieties that were perhaps already there, but that were brought to a particular head through this lens? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I should say that um, for better or worse, a lot of a lot of the sources, obviously, all of the transcripts of POWs are um, are by men talking to other men. Um, but I, I, I am able to uh, harness those sources for insights into a little bit about what, what their mothers and wives and sisters are saying back home. And also bring in, as I mentioned before, letters and diaries authored, <clears throat> excuse me, authored by women. Um, so, so, so I do try to to bring in different gender perspectives in the study, but what I think what I'm most effective in in showing is the male perspective and and what you rightly call the male anxiety about gender relations and and gender roles during the war that are getting uh, subverted and some might say even perverted or you know some contemporaries would call it that. Um, there's another reason that Germans as in general and, and German leadership were so hesitant to call for total mobilization because they were afraid of, of what it would do to traditional gender and class roles, etc. And, and once total mobilization happens and women are drawn into, into labor services or are drawn into uh, building defense installations and, and some of them even serve abroad in the occupied territories, German men uh, that I capture in my book here are, are finding a lot of evidence for, for this perversion of, of gender norms. There, there, there's plenty tales in my book about um, Germans talking about the, the women they encountered in France or they had the women that they, the German women that were deployed east and how they just went wild there and, and lost all control of their uh, of their morals and and you know just engaged in sexual escapades etc and it causes a lot of uh, a lot of distress among the men among the German men to think what this war is doing uh, to their women or what their women are doing to this war uh, during this war so so it's it's a very stressful situation. Uh, for for a lot of people as, as they're perceiving this moral degeneration to happen uh, in German society as the war carries on. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how it's it's particularly projected on on them as, as carriers of this morality and, and, and having sort of let it loose um, as it seemed to have been described. I wanted to go back to a theme that we we touched on previously, which was on that of, of genocide and on, on mass atrocity and how German civilians apprehended this information. Can you tell us a bit more about the different ways in which both during the war and after the war, civilians utilized strategies to evade culpability or, or explain these war crimes within the context of the war? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And and one of the, you know, one of the ones I, I was most, or one of the topics I was most eager to um, examine my sources for, and one that perhaps is a little frustrating, especially for Holocaust uh, scholars, because not surprisingly, the, the topic of war crimes, the topic of, of atrocities committed or witnessed um, by German combatants remains a very sensitive one, in, even in captivity, and, and perhaps especially in captivity, as people, as German POWs, uh, are very wary of, of being held accountable. So, and, and yet we find that even in these transcripts uh, that were generated by the CSDIC, where ostensibly these many German soldiers did not realize they were, uh, they were being observed uh, in, in the manner that they were, we find that they talk about atrocities. Uh, usually, um, we find that they talk about atrocities in the third person. So there's there's a distancing uh, effect. Um, it's usually described as something that others did, uh, most notably the SS. Uh, you know, the, we find even in real time during the war, German soldiers from all branches of the armed services um, sort of distancing themselves from the SS. And there's almost this palpable uh, relief that, that, well, it's the SS that's been committing all these crimes. It's the SS that's, that I heard, you know, they were rounding up Jews in this village or that. It's, it's, it's SS men who shot up uh, this village and that. Uh, so, so there's a sort of um, accounting of these crimes as they occurred or in, in real time, but it's usually even already during the war, it's usually being alleged that a, a particular group of German perpetrators uh, committed these crimes. And uh, the, the stories about, especially the stories about mass shootings or, you know, what, what many scholars now call the Holocaust by bullets, circulate not only among the armed forces, but also trickle down into the general populace um, uh, are being shared, however cautiously, uh, among German civilians. And we and, and then later in the war, there's also an interesting aspect whereby uh, Nazi authorities uh, sort of try to impress among the populace without naming names and without, you know, uh, explicitly pointing to to this genocidal violence that's, that they have been perpetrating uh, for many years at that point. They, they kind of point to, well, you know, we had to make, we had to make difficult decisions. Uh, people were killed. And, uh, and, and if we lose this war, we will be all held accountable for it. And so this combination of, of popular awareness of atrocities committed by Germans and in the German name um, and, you know, the, the sort of uh, vague reinforcing by, by German authorities that, yes, this happened. And, uh, and if, if we lose the war, there will be a terrible reckoning for this. Um, really makes an impression with a, with a lot of ordinary Germans. Um, they, they, fear, they fear a post-war or post-defeat reckoning, um, but at the same time are also become more and more invested in, in this alibi that already unfolds during the war or that's already being built in broad swaths of, of German society that, yes, these crimes happened, but they were perpetrated by a particular group of perpetrators, uh, most notably the SS. And so, so we, we find evidence of, of this widely shared narrative or widely shared understanding of culpability already during the war. And then it, of course, becomes much more pronounced after the war. Um, when, you know, despite uh, some efforts at, at uh, tribunals and, and war crimes trials, uh, German society becomes very comfortable uh, in the post-war period with pointing to 
the alleged perpetrators as a small um, and sort of aberrant group among the Germans, while the rest of German society allegedly had no culpability, had no knowledge, and really no agency in, in those crimes. Um, and that's that's an enduring myth of the war generation that really shapes how several generations of Germans looked back at the war and at the culpability for those war crimes. And and someone who had particular insights to uh, popular attitudes during the period and uh, the perceptions of, of the course of the war was Victor Klemper, a source that you use throughout uh, your book as well. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what were some of the key insights that Klemper had in his diaries and what set his uh, what set these sources apart from some of the others that you used? I, yeah, I have to say, you know, I, I was so pleased to be able to use his diary. It, it, it played such a huge role in my graduate education. And, and I was, um, you know, just, I was so pleased to be able to have an opportunity here to use his insights into how, ordinary Germans, non-Jewish Germans that he encountered sort of rationalized and and explained the war and how, you know, how they helped really make his his and and his peers' life miserable in 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 many uh, sort of aggressive ways in, in day-to-day life. I think there's no, you know, my my regret is the, his diaries and, and his perceptions of, of how the Nazi regime operated and how that reflected day-to-day life in in the in the Nazi era and then later in the war era uh, are so many and, and so multifaceted. It was my my great regret was I, I could only use very little of his insights. But I, I thought he was a great uh, and rare source of someone who lived among Germans, among ordinary Germans throughout the war. And yet, because of his uh, status, he was obviously relegated to the realm of the of the persecuted. So he kind of lived at the periphery of German society, looking in and and was obviously a very perceptive observer of how those Germans, uh, non-Jewish Germans around him operated. And I think he was a very um, keen observer of of ways in which Germans uh, jostled for for favors during the war, how they how they tried to improve their lot um, materially or, or status wise, um, you know, often by by hurting others during the war. And and I think most importantly. What I what I appreciated about his voice in in this in the context of my book was his his keen observations about how Germans on the one hand could be very I don't know invested ideologically and otherwise in the Nazi projects of, of of racial subjugation of you know German racial superiority of, of homogenization of, of territorial conquest and then on the other hand uh, toward the end of the war how quickly uh, people were uh, being opportunistic in sort of shedding those those prior uh, identities or, or shedding those prior convictions and and really positioning themselves in a more favorable light um, by saying we are you know we always hated the Nazi regime we always knew this war could go nowhere and we're glad it's over now so he's he's a really wonderfully keen observer of of how those dynamics. Uh, and, and those shifts in sort of self-identification and self-perception happen uh, among those around him. And what was also interesting to me was that he didn't seem so certain, even in the sort of final hours of the war, that the war would end in German defeat. So it was, it was, it was, it was really fascinating to me how he observed these the, the shifting tides and how he uh, observed public perception and how he received information about the course of the war. So I was wondering if then we could talk a bit about 
um, your final chapters, chapters four and five, in which you you discussed the July 1944 attempt on on Hitler's life as a key turning point, but then also Hitler's mental decline and really the final final days. Um, you know, nonetheless, some still held steadfast the idea of of Germany's legitimacy in the war um, to Hitler's supremacy and and um, sort of careful planning in all of it. Um, but you also point out that there's a diversity of responses, just as there was a diversity of responses to to the war in its previous years. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the German populace reacted in these in really these final hours. Sure. I, you know, I, I think um, anyone in the field or anyone who studies this topic will, will realize that what I crammed into two chapters probably could each make uh, and have made their, you know, own studies or, or justified their own studies of, of each of these topics. Um, but I, my attempt here was to signal very strongly yet another turning point uh, for German society, for the German military effort, and, and German perceptions of the war that starts to happen in 1944. And that has to do with this confluence of factors, including the, the, the Stauffenberg, uh, you know, uh, attempt at, at Hitler's life, uh, the, the Nazi regime's response to those events, um, the escalation of the Allied air war during the, that period against uh, German industrial and urban centers, the, the sort of the visceral advance, the advance of, of allied armies onto German territory uh, from all sides, and then all of that culminating in Hitler's uh, suicide. All of that signals a, a dramatic uh, turning point in, in how Germans experience the war. Again, it's as, as I said earlier, um, while there was no broad enthusiasm for the war initially um, people German met a lot of German people got behind this war effort or started getting invested in this war effort during the early years when when the war went well and when the war required very little sacrifices from them for it's it's surprising to think of a war of, of such um, calamitous uh, proportions for, for so much of, of European society and, and European countries uh, as something that was really abstract for many Germans for many years. Um, there was, there was in, in the initial war years, there was very little damage to German territory or, or German infrastructure. And again, as I said, the, the Nazi regime really avoided broad mobilization and, and broad sacrifices for, for large swaths of, of German society for many years. So, so the war was initially something that, uh, while, not, while not celebrated, was really something that was advantageous for a lot of Germans, um, and, and that required very little in return. By 1944, we find the exact opposite. We find that Germans are now facing a war that is destructive and lethal to them in a way it had never been before. Um, during that period, more Germans, uh, both civilians and uh, combatants, are dying than in the entire five years before that. So it becomes a very bloody war for the Germans. It becomes destructive. Uh, the German war economy is collapsing, so there's shortages of everything, all consumer goods of foods that the Germans are experiencing for the first time. Um, in the aftermath of the uh, attempt against Hitler's life, the Nazi regime tries to crack down and, and really establish what they call a war dictatorship, uh, trying to uh, really strengthen controls on all aspects of, of German life and, and trying to persecute um, you know, anyone suspected of, of being not 100% behind this war effort. So it's not only allied uh, escalation of war violence and, and uh, sort of the escalation of war burdens, but this is also a self-inflicted 
event that the Nazis are uh, deliberately pursuing in an attempt to root out any uh, perceived internal threat and to strengthen the position, uh, their own position internally through sheer force. Um, So all of this obviously makes now for, for a very dramatically different war experience. Um, And yet the more German, the regular Germans are asked to sacrifice and bear during this period, the less is the regime able to actually show results for this. You know, this, none of this halts the advance of the allied armies. None of this halts the, the, Uh, bombing of German cities. None of this improves the material situation of most Germans. So so it becomes this really unusual strain on German society. Um, And, you know, in a lot of literature, we explain the, the sort of popular consensus or support for the Nazi regime in the early Uh, peace years, but also in the early war years, by saying that, well, the Nazis, um, there was an opportunistic aspect to it. They they bought, uh, essentially bought compliance, you know, by giving people opportunities for social advancements or, or, you know, other, other sort of material comforts by plundering the European continent. We no longer have a regime in 1944 that is able to buy this compliance, um, but it has to kind of force it and it has to rely on the willingness of, of the regular people to to participate or continue participating despite uh, receding gains. And that's what makes the final war period uh, so different from all the years that preceded. And, uh, and for that then to culminate in, in what many perceive as, as the absolute traumatic event of Hitler's suicide by which he, they believe he's abandoning them to their fate um, makes that, that final year uh, particularly grueling and brutal for Germans. And these are some of some very fascinating takeaways that you also close on sort of how these crisis conditions um, obscured some of the the broader ideological attitudes that were driving driving the war. So as we come to the end of our time, I wanted to close by asking you sort of what are some of the takeaways that surprised you the most from this research and what from this research project maybe is informing your future projects? So um, what are you working on next in your own research? Sure. I I think what surprised me most was, hmm, I don't know. I, I, I think what surprised me most was how relevant uh, to sort of contemporary uh, situations. I sometimes felt the study was in a way that I hadn't before, you know, in in examining how people uh, during World War II or particular people in World War II um, mind sort of disparate sources of of information for what they perceive to be the truth. while you know rejecting, um, while rejecting what what objectively were facts, um, seemed to be of a particular relevance for the time and place that that we live in now. Even though you know, as as a historian, I'm, I'm very wary of, of of making those parallels. Um, but but just watching a, a people back in time or, or a group of people back in time trying to make sense of, of what they perceive as as a crisis um, as a crisis and and trying to tell stories about the world around them in crisis or and 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 trying to make sense of that world by telling stories no matter how nonsensical they often are and and there are plenty of those in in my book um it it it, it seemed it it really resonated with me um sometimes looking at at current conditions um and um and yeah, and, and I think I, I'm still surprised by how 
how deep that investment in, in, in many ways into these Nazi projects of, of German, you know, racial superiority and homogenization and, and sort of uh, territorial acquisition was among, among people even at the time who would not describe themselves or would not have described themselves as, as Nazis. Uh, yet they shared those same visions for for their nation's future and, and what their nation should strive for on the one hand, and then how quickly um, they were able to at least pay lip service to to the post-war um, party line, essentially, to, to being able to say, yeah, you know what, we never believed any of that anyway. And it's time to move on um, after, you know, these these deeply unsettling and, and traumatic ways and uh, in which the war ended for the Germans. But I'm also I'm still it honestly, it still hurts my heart too to find so much evidence of of Germans so preoccupied with their own suffering during those years and and so just readily uh, and willing to abandon all responsibility for the suffering that the Germans had unleashed onto so many others. Um, it's a very disturbing uh, aspect. Perhaps it's not surprising, but it's a very disturbing aspect of this book, how how our own suffering uh, can really uh, just shut us off or, or, or make us unwilling to engage with anyone else's. Um, and as to what I work, what I work on next, I, um, I think for the foreseeable future, I'm focusing on uh, the scholarship that I pursue at the Holocaust Museum, uh, which is really trying to, um, you know, situate or, or explain uh, the Nazi era and the war and the Holocaust through the camp infrastructure that the Nazi regime and its allies put in place uh, to manage various populations, to manage uh, the extermination or, or mass murder of various populations and, and to mold and punish uh, others. Um, as, as someone who studied the history of, of Nazi Germany um, in grad school, you know, and, and thought she had quite a good grasp on, on how the regime worked and, and how um, how the war unfolded in, in Germany and in Europe during that time, it continues to just amaze me how, um, how little I understood about the centrality of the camp network uh, in, in the Nazi dictatorship, uh, not just inside Germany, but across occupied and allied Europe. Um, and so that's, that's a topic that is very important to me going forward. Well, Thank you so much for your work on, on researching and contributing to this body of knowledge and, and also, of course, for discussing your book today with me. I really appreciate it. And it was fascinating to get some more insights into a really rich text and so many, so many incredible primary sources that you've shared with us. Thank you, Leah. It was great talking with you as well. Thank you very much. And hopefully we'll catch you on the podcast another time. Thank you.